0: Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so while we go over recent developments in the public safety labor world. I'm not going to start by launching right into discussing cases that have been decided, although we've got some pretty interesting ones this month. But instead, I want to talk about the persistent recruitment and retention crisis facing public safety agencies. This has been with us a long time now. It's been with us six, eight years or so. It started in the law enforcement world, but it has spread. Uh, If you monitor newspaper articles from around the country, and we we try to do that here at LRIS, uh, you'll see stories written about The inability to recruit and retain not just police and deputy sheriffs and troopers, but corrections officers, dispatchers, firefighters, EMS personnel. It's sort of a broad-based problem across the entire public safety world. And employers have generally been responding to this on a local level by negotiating collective bargaining agreements that have wage increases, the likes of which uh, we haven't seen for 30, 40 years now. Uh, And not just uh, wage increases, but you see uh, creative forms of specialty pay. Uh, Pay for, for example, law enforcement officers wearing uh, body cameras. They're undergoing mandatory crisis intervention training. Uh, we've seen hiring bonuses. We've seen retention bonuses where you get paid simply for staying there. We see lateral transfer bonuses in amounts that would make your head spin. The highest one I know of now is an $80,000 lateral hiring bonus paid by a law enforcement agency in the Bay Area. Uh, we've seen uh, residency pay where uh Employees are given extra money to live within the jurisdictional limits of a city or a county. Increased time off. We've seen it all, and it hasn't seemed to have a big impact. It's just even now getting up to the state legislature level. Uh, there have been articles in the last month uh, describing the Pennsylvania legislature and governor. Uh, acting together to give troopers a, a significant wage increase. Uh, we've seen the West Virginia legislature just in the last few weeks a step in. West Virginia, by the way, one of the least labor-friendly states in the country, stepping in to give corrections officers a 15% raise. And there are reports that the city of Austin, Texas, Austin, Texas, one of the richest cities in the country, uh, unable to hold on to EMS personnel looking at vacancies that exceed more than 25% of the workforce and uh, negotiating a new contract with significant wage increases. Uh, So we've seen all these things tried, and so far, they haven't taken hold very well. Uh, And at least initially, some people were saying, well, that's because the economy is so good. uh, And we've been in this recovery mode with low unemployment and uh, things are looking pretty bright on the economics from the economic standpoint. Well, uh, yeah, they were. That's what the numbers indicate. But that's actually not what the public thinks. The public thinks the economy is worse than it actually is. And so I'm not at all convinced that the good economy is causing uh, this recruitment and retention crisis. And we've had good economies in the past, right? And we didn't see the recruitment and retention problems then that we do now. Uh, I think this is something where Uh, young men and women in this country are simply voting with their feet as to whether or not they want careers in public safety. So uh, what's the future going to look like? Um, I've been thinking a fair amount about this, and I've got three predictions for you. Come check with me in 10 years. Let's see whether or not these things come true. But three predictions that I think are very, very likely to happen. The first is, I think we're likely to see consolidation, particularly on the law enforcement front, less so from firefighters, less so from corrections officers, but particularly in law enforcement. Uh, I think uh, any number of small police agencies in the country are going to find themselves simply unable to compete uh, with larger cities and counties in their state and in neighboring states and countrywide, right? Because we're now in a, uh, uh, a national recruiting market. Um, so I think those cities are and are simply going to get out of the business of policing. We're seeing it already. We're seeing some city councils voting to disband police departments. Uh, That's something you rarely used to see, and now it's not infrequent at all. How is an eight-person police department in Ohio going to be expected to compete for employees with a 800-person sheriff's department? Uh, You can see why consolidation is likely to happen. What form is consolidation going to take? It'll take two forms, I think. Uh, One form will be that counties and small cities will simply be entering into more contracts where the county agrees to provide law enforcement services to the city in exchange for certain payments. Uh, But I think you'll also see the creation of law enforcement districts more than we have right now. We have a few in the country right now, probably most prominently uh, Las Vegas and Clark County, which are consolidated into a metropolitan police agency. But I think you'll see that as part of the consolidation movement that we'll see law enforcement districts being created. So that, that's prediction number one. We're going to see consolidation. By the way, uh, what should employees do or expect in consolidation? I'd recommend taking the bull by the horn. Go to your state legislature, see if you can get a statute passed along the lines, we have one here in Oregon, that says that if you lose your job due to consolidation, Uh, that you will have a job in the entity that is taking over providing services where your city or county used to provide them. Okay, second prediction. I think we're going to see more civilianization. Uh, This is kind of an odd one because uh, the evidence is at least mixed on whether civilianization of police or fire functions saves any money at all. And when I say at least mixed, I'll tell you that the, the times that I have done studies of the long-term costs and benefits of civilianization, uh, it has indicated that civilianization doesn't save any money whatsoever. I mean, take a look, for example, at uh, the civilianization of dispatch. 30, 40 years ago, we used to see a lot of uh, police officers and firefighters doing dispatch, and that job has largely been civilianized in this country. But now, in order to attract and retain dispatchers, uh, cities and counties have to pay them what they pay police officers and firefighters. So there's just been no measurable long-term savings from the consolidation or, or from the civilianization of dispatch. So I I don't think civilianization is going to save any money, but I do think it's an easy lift for policymakers on a city council or a board of commissioners uh, to say, okay, we're we're really on the reform bandwagon here. This is how we're going to reform. We're going to civilianize. Uh, I don't think it's going to produce any impact on the recruitment and retention crisis because it's not going to save money, but we'll see. And my third prediction is the defund movement in law enforcement has been set back on its heels probably for many years at this point. Uh, I think people are realizing that the whole notion of defunding police was not thought through at all, certainly not tested empirically, and is kind of a fundamentally bad idea, right? Because what academics have known for many years and shown in some pretty compelling studies is now being felt by people in cities like Portland or Seattle or wherever the defund movement has taken hold, Minneapolis most prominently. And that is that the number of police officers you have has an impact on crime. And not just crime in general, but violent crime in particular. Uh, That's something that should not have been a mystery to us, but it seems like it was. But I think now an awful lot of people realize that. I mean, here in Portland, you do public opinion polls, and in a city that uh, two, three years ago had a very, very active defund movement. Today, the vast majority of the population wants more police officers, not fewer. So those are the three things I think we're going to see. Consolidation, civilianization, and for at least a while, the end of the defund movement's successes. Um, But it's harder to predict a way out of the recruitment and retention crisis. I hate to say it because it seems very simple, but I think the answer is going to be money. I think we're going to have to pay public safety employees Probably, you know, what they always should have been paid. We should have always treated them like the professionals that they are. And now I think we're going to be forced to do that. Okay, the first of our cases this month, uh, a really good case. Good, isn't it? it? I think the court gets the answer right and it gives us a lesson that every employer in this country ought to know. It ought to be ingrained. And the question that the court ends up facing is, when is an employer liable for pre and post shift work under the Fair Labor Standards Act? This case comes out of New York City. It's a group of 2,519 paramedics and EMS personnel. Uh, They filed a lawsuit alleging that the city required them to perform work tasks before and after their shifts, but only compensated them if the employees requested overtime pay. The the case did not settle. Uh, It went to a jury trial, and after a 12-day trial, the jury found in favor of the employees and not only that, found that the city's violation of the law was willful, uh, and uh, which means the employees get the benefits of a three-year statute of limitation rather than the FLSA's two-year statute of limitation. That's normally the case, and it means that employees got double damages, liquidated damages. All told, uh, the jury uh, decision. Uh, required the city to pay $17 million to the EMS personnel. City appeals goes to the Federal Second Circuit Court of Appeals. This is um, a really solid court of appeals in terms of intellect and ability. Uh, You see courts of appeals vary in those qualities around the country. Second Circuit, one of the best. Uh, maybe even the best uh, federal court of appeals in the country now. And the court rejects the city's appeal. Um, So what is the court dealing with? What what plate is set for the court here? And here's the way the court describes it. It says these employees give time-sensitive, potentially life-saving medical care in a myriad of emergency conditions, including overdoses, shootings, accidents, and the like. Uh, the employees are scheduled to an eight-hour shift, uh, but even though they're based out of various fire stations uh, scattered throughout New York City, they spend their shifts waiting in an ambulance at a designated location away from the station house, and uh, they're always on call during their 8 hours. Period of time. Now before the EMTs can set out for these designated locations in an ambulance, they've got to do a lot of things. They have to uh, put on their uh, personal protective equipment. The PPE includes helmet, gloves, pants, coats, respirators. Uh, They have to retrieve this PPE from their locker, inspect it. They have to inspect gear like radios and stethoscopes and shears and things like that. They also have to retrieve and inspect what's called a technician's bag with additional first aid uh, materials. And they have to inspect, of course, their vehicle uh, before they take off. And then at the end of the shift, they kind of have to unwind all of that and meet with the oncoming shift to an exchange of information. Um, so uh, that's the, the work life of EMT personnel. How does the city record this time? Well, the city has an electronic timekeeping and payroll system known as city time. Uh, no space between city and time. And it uses what's called a pay-to-schedule approach. And what that means is employees are automatically paid only for time during their shift, not for the time at the station getting ready for the job or time spent at the station after their shifts are done. Now, city time does Register presence at the station to the minute by using scanners located at the entrance of each station house. So the city's payroll system knows how many hours that the EMT personnel are spending before they take off uh, in their ambulance to their whatever location they're supposed to be on call at. It registers that time to the minute, Um, but uh, it doesn't call for payment for that time. So if an EMT scans into city time 10 minutes before the shift and scans out 10 minutes after the shift, they'll only be paid for the eight hours during the shift because of this pay to schedule approach and not for the 10 minutes intervals before and after. Uh, these are chunks of time that everybody in the city seems to call slivers. And under city policy, an EMT who works during a sliver must submit an overtime request in order to be paid. And the result is that EMTs are routinely worked overtime during the slivers And that's what led to the $17 million jury verdict. So what's the city's argument on appeal? The city says, we don't have to compensate employees for required overtime work like this unless employees report the work and request to be paid. And the court's answer to that is, It's a beautiful six-word sentence, uh, as pithy as it could be. Quote, that appealing proposition is not the law. Seven words, sorry. Um, And the court goes on to say, and I'm going to quote here uh, for three, four sentences, because this is really important for everybody to hear and know, because it's been the law for 80 years, but we forget about it collectively. Quote, an employer violates the FLSA when it does not pay overtime wages for work it suffers or permits, that is, work it requires, knows about, or should have known about. Whether the employer also knows that the employee will not be paid is irrelevant to FLSA liability. Employers may, of course, require employees to report overtime work, and an employee's failure to do so will, in many circumstances, allow the employer to disclaim knowledge that triggers FLSA obligations. Here it comes. But an employer that nonetheless requires, knows about, or should know about work must compensate the worker regardless of whether pay is requested and regardless of whether the employer knows the worker will not be paid. Okay, why? Why, uh, What's the reason for that sort of rule uh, under the FLSA? And uh, the court has an easy answer for that. Quote, in any wage and hour regulatory scheme, Somebody must bear ultimate responsibility for recording time worked and ensuring that payment is made. We have long recognized that the FLSA places the payment obligation on employers, a congressional choice consistent with the desire to remedy the evil of overwork and to apply financial pressure on employers to reduce overtime, end quote. What's that last little bit all about, Uh, the evil of overwork and applying financial pressure? You have to remember that the FLSA goes way back. It was passed by Congress in 1938. We were still in kind of the depths of the Great Depression in 1938, and uh, one of the purposes of the FLSA stated uh, right in the act itself and certainly is littered throughout the uh, legislative history behind the FLSA, what was said in Congress and the like, one of the purposes of the FLSA was to stop overtime work from being performed. Why? Because if you uh, have a lot of employees doing a lot of overtime, you don't need as many employees. And if you don't need as many employees, you're going to have higher levels of unemployment like you would see at the height of the Great Depression. The whole notion behind requiring employers to pay time and a half is to exact an economic penalty to discourage employers from requiring overtime, and to spread uh, employment opportunities around a much broader base of the population. Uh, We sometimes forget about that core reason for the overtime requirements of the FLSA, uh, but you can see how it carries through in the court's decision in the Second Circuit. Um, Now, the city has one more argument in this case and uh, it says, the city uh, tells the court, well, you know, some paramedics put in for overtime uh, and some paramedics never actually did this uh, pre-shift work, Uh, therefore, we're not liable for any of it. And the court says, No, that's not the case. Employer, it's your job to control the amount of overtime that is worked. You can compel employees not to ever work overtime. You could have a rule like that. That would be perfectly valid. But if some employees are working overtime, you've got to pay them. Period. End of issue. So interesting case, uh, it's uh, kind of a, one of a series of huge jury decisions and settlements against the uh, city of New York. You'd think of all employers in the country, the city of New York would understand the FLSA, uh, but it keeps getting hit with these claims. Next up, we have a arbitration decision concerning video that is, I think, a a pretty far reach for what the law of due process is, Uh, but uh, you you be the judge here. Uh, We'll post the arbitrator's decision, which involves the city of Akron, in our show notes so that you can download it if you'd like. So what's going on in this case? Uh, On August 18th of last year, an Akron police officer who's identified in the arbitrator's opinion only as A in disciplinary cases that are publicly reported, uh, you typically see that, by the way. You don't see the employee's full name. You see something like A or X or John Doe or whatever it might be. So this officer, A, is ordered by the city's Office of Professional Standards and Accountability to answer questions about something that happened a week and a half earlier at the Marriott Hotel in College Station, Texas. So uh, this is a hotel very far away from Akron, Ohio. Uh, A is represented at the interview by the president of Lodge 7, of the Fraternal Order of Police. At the time of the questioning, uh, the city had videos of camera footage from the Marriott uh, that had been obtained just as part of the investigation. Uh, The president of the FOP asks that he and A be given the opportunity to view the Marriott-provided videos before A is ordered to answer questions. Uh, the city says no, uh, and eventually A is given a one-day suspension. The FOP doesn't challenge the one-day suspension, but it does file a grievance contesting the denial of its request to view the video. So the, this case is about a union request to see third-party video before an officer is interviewed about the incident that is captured on the video. There is a contract clause that the grievance relies upon and that contract clause reads, quote, no officer shall be ordered to give a statement if there is a body camera video and or in-car video or similar recordings until the officer and the officer's representative are afforded the opportunity to view the video first. Uh, And the arbitrator ends up upholding the grievance. The arbitrator finds that the dispute uh, boils down to the meaning of the word similar in the contract clause. And uh, the arbitrator says, well, you know, similar is a type of word that could have uh, different interpretations. So What I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on the intent or the purpose of providing these sorts of videos during non-criminal investigations. I'm going to look at what the intent was of that sort of language. And uh, the, the arbitrator goes on to say, well, I think the intent here is we want to give officers access to the relevant evidence in a disciplinary investigation where their job is at risk. You know, this was only a one-day suspension. It might have been a termination. Who knows? Uh, So uh, what you want is that uh, you want to make sure that employees who have more than a unilateral expectation of continued employment, meaning employees who have a property interest uh, in their job, we want to make sure they get procedural due process. Procedural due process essentially uh, under the mail rule decided by the Supreme Court. And the arbitrator says that due process is, quote, that the employee is minimally entitled to notice of the charges against him or her and an explanation of the employer's evidence and an opportunity to present his or her side of the story before the proposed disciplinary action is taken. And the arbitrator then goes on to say uh, that what that means is, or at least the phrase, an explanation of the employer's evidence, that means that the employee should be entitled to see all videos, and the word similar includes even third-party videos. Now, the arbitrator said that's not a hard and fast rule. The city's interests might include the right to administer appropriate discipline. The city's interests might include the avoidance of administrative burdens, but, says the arbitrator, Those interests do not outweigh the employee's interests. And I'm quoting again. Adequate due process procedures that are in place in the form of a predisciplinary hearing before an impartial hearing officer is distinguished from the due process right to receive an explanation of the employer's evidence before the officer provides an official statement during an investigative interview. Interesting case, right? It's the first one I've ever seen where there's ever been an attempt to link the Loudermilk guarantees of procedural due process uh, to the ability to see evidence prior to a disciplinary interview. You see this sometimes under statutory peace officer bills bills of rights, Uh, like I can think of a few California cases along those lines, Uh, but they come out the other way uh, with no right of access to things like uh, third-party videos. Uh, This arbitrator is really pushing the envelope on what procedural due process requires It'll be interesting to see what sort of legs this opinion has. I want to conclude with a case from the city of Easton, Pennsylvania. It's a great uh, decision about past practice, addressing several of the questions that come up in debates about whether something is or isn't a past practice. And this ends up before a hearing officer, I think an administrative law judge, Um, in Pennsylvania, uh, who works for the Labor Relations Board there. This is a case involving uh, the city of Easton, Pennsylvania. Officers in the city of Easton are represented by Lodge 17 of the Fraternal Order of Police. uh, And Lodge 17 files an unfair labor practice charge with the Labor Relations Board, alleging that the city failed to bargain in good faith by unilaterally implementing a new policy concerning sick leave. What's the policy? Uh, the new policy is that employees would not be allowed to use paid sick leave while on FMLA leave for the birth of a son or daughter. Uh, and the city has a number of arguments here as to why it is doesn't have to bargain over the implementation of this new policy. And uh, I think it's an excellent way to frame uh, the importance of this case. The city's first argument, whether sick leave could be used for, let's call it baby bonding time, the city first argues that's not mandatory for bargaining. And that one, the hearing officer just brushes aside. He says... You know, mandatory subjects of bargaining include wages, hours, and working conditions. Whether or not you can use sick leave for baby bonding time is clearly an hours issue, and it is clearly a working condition issue. And uh, our labor board and labor boards elsewhere have consistently held that the use of sick leave is mandatory for bargaining. Secondly, the city argues that no past practice has been created. Uh, And once again, the hearing officer disagrees. He says, and I'm quoting here, a custom or practice is not something which arises simply because a given course of conduct has been pursued by management or the employees on one or more occasions. It must be a normal reaction to a recurring type of situation. And that's exactly what happened here. This practice existed for four years, uh, and that is long enough to establish a past practice. And you know what, said the hearing officer, something very important happened in those four years. What happened is the parties renegotiated their contract, and they have a new collective bargaining agreement. The hearing officer says, hey, our Labor Relations Board has long held that a past practice that starts under one contract and continues unabated into the term of the new contract remains binding." regardless of whatever waiver clauses or anything else you put in the contract. Uh, And I think that's an important principle. Past practices are strengthened by intervening bargaining opportunities. Uh, Labor boards do what this hearing officer did. Uh, They will say, look, you had an opportunity to change this practice. You meaning union or employer, you should have brought it up at the bargaining table. If you didn't change the practice at the bargaining table, don't come to us now saying that there is no past practice. All right, back to the opinion. The city's next argument's an interesting one. I haven't seen this too often, but it always seems to come out the same way. Uh, the city says there can't be a past practice here. You know why? Because the people who permitted the use of paid sick leave for baby bonding time are, while they're not bargaining unit members, they are managerial personnel. We don't know from the opinion whether they're lieutenants or captains or something, but they're supervisors who are sworn law enforcement officers, but are not in the bargaining unit, but they are members of the FOP. The city says they are therefore, quote, brothers, end quote, of bargaining unit officers. The hearing officer totally disregards that argument. Uh, In fact, the hearing officer refers to the argument as, quote, equally untenable, end quote. And the hearing officer goes on to say, these supervisors, let's call them lieutenants and captains, these supervisors, while they're not members of the bargaining unit and may be members of the FOP, they're your employees, city. You have given them the authority to approve or disapprove of sick leave. You are stuck with their decisions. And if you don't like what their decisions are, then you need to either change the scope of authority that they are given or make sure that your lieutenants and captains have clearer instructions. Uh, Next argument from the city is that the contract precluded the use of paid sick leave for paternity leave because it didn't specifically mention the issue. The sick leave article does say that the purpose of sick leave is protecting employees from financial loss resulting from lost wages due to incapacitation. And the city says, because that's the purpose of sick leave, uh, baby bonding time doesn't fall within that purpose. The hearing officer once again says, no, that's not right. To begin with, the hearing officer says, The fact that the contract is silent on whether sick leave can be used for baby bonding time, that's the very reason we're here. If the contract were not silent on that issue, we'd have a grievance that would be before an arbitrator. But when a union is claiming that an employer's change in policy constitutes a unilateral alteration of wages, hours, and working conditions that the employer is not given the authority to do by the contract. That's what a labor board is here to decide. This is a continuing duty to bargain question where the contract is silent. Does an employer have a duty to bargain over a change in this issue, whatever it might be? And uh, here, let me quote the hearing officer on this issue. Quote, because the collective bargaining agreement here is silent and therefore ambiguous regarding the use of paid sick leave for the birth of a child, the party's past practice of allowing the use of such leave for several years is appropriate to determine the existing terms and conditions of employment. Uh, And the hearing officer concludes by once again pointing to the intervening negotiations and the importance of those negotiations. So I I think this is a a pretty classic past practice case. It deals with some important issues. How long does a practice need to exist uh, before it becomes a binding past practice? This hearing officer says, well, but something that's recurring on a regular basis, four years is long enough. Uh, It addresses the question of whether or not uh, managerial personnel have the authority to bind the city. uh, And the answer, the hearing officer says, is yes. And then lastly, it talks about Can you have a past practice where the contract is silent on the issue? And the hearing officer says, yeah, that's what past practice is all about. And all three of those answers are very standard answers from labor boards that you would expect in any case. Well, uh, that's it for this edition of First Thursday. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, We've got a couple of seminars coming up in the next couple of months. We've got one on grievances, past practice, and arbitration in September in Las Vegas. And we also have one on advanced police discipline in Las Vegas in November. Uh, Check out LRIS.com for more information on those seminars. Uh, Thanks for joining us. This is Will Aitchison signing off.